stars, you foreknew us in Christ. You forechose us in Christ. Knowing full well that we would be rebellious sinners, we praise you, God, that you decided before anything started that you would save a people for yourself. And in pure grace, you numbered us among that group. And Lord, we thank you for your love that you showed in making this world, knowing full well that we would rebel and ruin it. And yet, Lord, you made it anyway. We thank you for your love in sending your word into the world through Abraham and then through Moses and then through the prophets. And finally, we thank you for the greatest demonstration of your love, which was to send your own son to become human flesh in this world. We thank you that he lived among us, that he endured uh, all of the uh, difficulties of life on planet earth. He endured oppression and evil. And finally, he allowed his holy, precious life to be snuffed out on a cross so that we could be saved. God, thank you that you sent your only son to die for us so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And thank you, Jesus, that you not only died for us, but you rose, you went up back to heaven, and then you sent the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that in the, at the right time, you opened up our hearts. Uh, someone came to us, God, and shared the story of Jesus with us, and you opened our hearts so that we could believe. And so we thank you for your grace. God, I know that if you hadn't touched me, I would just be a lost, hard-headed person living my life the way I wanted to live it on a total collision course with eternal judgment. And I thank You, Jesus, that You saved me. Thank You, Jesus, for giving us the church. Thank You for the body of Christ. We thank You now that we're forgiven in Christ, that, that You're with us, that when we go through trials, unemployment, hardship, illness, that we know Your hand is on us, that Your love will never leave us, that as we just said, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, nothing can separate us from Your love. And Lord, we thank You that someday we're going to have to come to the end of our lives. And when we're lying there on a deathbed, we don't have to fear death because we know You're with us and that there's resurrection. And Lord Jesus, we know that for all eternity after that, we're going to be with You. And so Your love is truly endless. It goes from eternity past to eternity future and encompasses everything that we need. And so Lord, we just rest this morning in Your love for us. God, I pray that, that we would experience Your love this morning, that we would know what a great God You are, that whatever fears, anxieties, doubts, depressions that we have, that we would just lay them, as, as is often said, at the foot of the cross, to know that your, your love takes care of it all, that You are a great God who not only saves us from our sins, but from everything else. Lord, thank You for... Uh, your care over this world. We do pray that Your hand would be upon those troubled places in the world. We pray, Lord, for Lebanon, for Israel, for the Middle East, that Your peace might prevail there, that, uh, that evil and wickedness would uh, not prevail, that, that, that Your church, that Lebanese followers of Christ and um, Israeli followers of Christ and Palestinian followers of Christ might be able to cross those lines and pray for one another, that the church might show the way forward to unity in that part of the world. Lord, we pray for Indonesia as they've suffered another tsunami that You might be with those grieving families. And Lord, may people turn to You in the face of these kinds of crises. Lord, we pray for our missionaries of the week in the bulletin, uh, Beverly and Marty Trice, who are working with international students right here in Boston, a mission field right in our backyard. Lord, bless Marty's work as he works with those international students. And may uh, we reach those who are right here in our own backyard. Lord, we pray for churches around uh, the South Shore area this morning that You would uh, bless them. God, we pray for Calvary Chapel in Rockland. We pray for First Baptist Church in Weymouth. We pray for North River Community Church. Lord, we pray for New Hope Chapel down in Plymouth. God, we pray for uh, all kinds of churches around, more than we can name this morning, who are proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus and who are seeking to be faithful to the Scriptures. Lord, we pray Your blessing on those churches. Protect those churches. And Lord, would You see fit to bless our church too? We need Your help every moment. God, help us with our building program. Lord, help us love each other as a church. I just pray, God, that our church would be full of Your love. That we would be uh, a real community, God. We don't want to just play church. That sickens us. Lord, we want to be full of true intimacy and communion with one another. We want to know what it means. Lord, everyone talks about community, but no one experiences it. And we want to be those who know what it really means. 
God, we pray that You'd make us holy, put to death sin in our lives, help us to overcome temptations, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God, I pray for those who are in need this morning of work. I pray for Lisa and Carolyn that You would give them uh, employment. I pray, Lord, for those who are, are fighting illnesses. We thank You, Lord, for Barbara Walsh coming through surgery. We pray for Karen Lyons as she endures chemo. Lord, we pray for others who are enduring medical treatment that You would strengthen them. And now, God, as we come to Your Word, we pray that You would speak to our hearts. Uh, we come to the Bible so expectantly, knowing that this is Your Word. It's not just a human book. It's, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, speak to us now. I need Your help to be able to preach this. We all need Your help to be able to hear Your Word. And so, Holy Spirit, do that work of bridging the gap between the eternal to the finite so that we who are mere humans struggling with sin might hear the Word of the living God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, any kids here, kindergarten to second grade, can be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find through the door over here by the piano. And I invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. It's on page 1031. Luke chapter 12. So we continue plotting through the Gospel of Luke, story by story. Luke chapter 12, and today we're studying verses 4 through 11. Let me just read that text and then we'll jump in. Luke 12, 4 through 11, or rather 4 through 12. This is what Jesus said. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after killing, the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world to be a committed Christian living in the Boston area. It can be challenging. If you're going to be an intentional follower of Jesus Christ and try to live that out consistently around here, you know, brace thyself for um, uh, rejection, for raised eyebrows, for ridicule. Uh, you know, understand that this is a difficult place to be a follower of Christ, which I've always found kind of interesting. It's a strange kind of dynamic because... In some ways, this is a very religious area. There's lots of churches. You probably on the, your drive here this morning, most likely you pass churches. Uh, people uh, come, uh, have religious backgrounds around us. People are not unfamiliar with church. Even if someone doesn't go to church at all, they might go on Christmas and Easter. So, you know, this is the place founded by the Puritans. And yet, and yet, if you decide to say, I'm going to try to live according to what the Bible teaches, I'm going to take Christ's teaching and integrate it in my life so that what I do Monday through Saturday is going to be consistent with what I'm professing on Sunday, and you try to live a committed Christian life, there's going to be some level of rejection, resistance, and hostility. Not from everybody, not everywhere. I'm not trying to create sort of a paranoia or conspiracy theory, but it's going to be there. Uh, I know a couple... Uh, moved into a neighborhood here on the South Shore, and they're all excited. Oh, we're going to finally be in a neighborhood, get to know people. But apparently, word got out through, uh, I guess they told the, uh, the seller, and the seller told the realtor, and word got out in the neighborhood that these were sort of committed evangelical religious types. And so when the people moved in the neighborhood, 
it was pretty cold. Uh, and, and, you know, more cold than the typical New England when you move into a neighborhood. Um, you know, even worse than that. And so, and, and you know, they, they got word sort of through the grapevine. They found out that, that this news had been spread about them. And then they found out through the grapevine that there were certain neighborhood gatherings they weren't being invited to. And, you know, oh, shh, don't mention that, you know, kind of stuff. And, and they put it all together like, wow, uh, I can't believe it. We're being held at arm's length because people are afraid, simply because we, you know, profess Christ and are serious about it, and they're not weirdos, at least not to my knowledge. Um, you know, I, I got an email this week, this week from a guy in our church who said, please pray for me. And apparently the situation was that at work this week, um, there's a guy he works with who's openly uh, gay, and, and this guy's a Christian. And, you know, they work together fine. They have a great relationship, no big deal. But uh, apparently this guy is a Christian signed the petition to have uh, a ballot initiative so that Massachusetts could vote on the whole marriage issue. Um, so, you know, whatever, he signed that thing. But, you know, I think I mentioned this before, some activist group took all those signatures, put it on a website, and so if you want to know who signed that petition, you can go and search by name or by town. And so someone searched it, they found out his name was there, this got around, and so, you know, this Christian guy comes to work and his friend confronts him, apparently rather aggressively and caustically, about him signing this petition. And it's this huge blow-up at work, and this guy's like, you know, pray for me. I, I, you know, this is just my own personal political statement. I mean, I mean, really, can you imagine that? This guy just a part of the democratic process. Could you imagine if it went the other way? Could you imagine if he, as a Christian, was accosting an openly gay person for their political activism? And yet he, he can't do it the other way. And so he's saying, pray for me. I mean, I'm not trying to make a big stink at work. I'm not saying anything at work. People just found out about this and, you know, look what's happening. And so you don't even have to be preachy. You can just try to live a consistent lifestyle as a Christian. And at some point along the way, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be opposition uh, in some form or another. And so we try to, you know, get around it. We try to... Coat it, you know, gel, like gel caps, you know, those things helping the pill go down easier. We try to gel cap Jesus. Maybe if I can put a gel cap around him, it'll be easier to smile, uh, swallow. Maybe if I can spin the gospel the right way, it'll get around people's concerns and somehow it'll, it'll get in. And, and so we say, okay, I'm not going to call myself a born again Christian because that freaks people out. I'm not going to call myself an evangelical because that's sort of been politicized recently. Uh, maybe I'll call myself a follower of Jesus. Well, that sounds a little culty. I, you know, so what am I going to call myself? And so we're, we're trying to think of ways to just talk about our Christian commitment. What used to just simply be called Christianity is now you have to find ways to define it so it doesn't freak people out. And, you know, there's some, some value in that. I don't think we should be obnoxious or obtuse or um, in your face necessarily about our faith. But on the other hand, if we think that we're going to find a way to package Christianity so that everybody's going to be cool with it, then we have not been studying the Gospel of Luke. Because if there's anything we've seen, especially in chapter 11 in this last Sunday, it's that, man, Christ is constantly up against opposition. That There are people coming at Him. No matter what He says, look back chapter 11, we had... Uh, Jesus healing this guy. I mean, isn't that nice that he healed somebody? And yet, the Pharisees are coming at him, accusing him of using satanic power. And then in chapter 11, verse 29, we studied that a couple weeks ago, uh, they're demanding a sign. They still don't believe in him. And then, of course, last Sunday, we saw that big blow up in verses 20, uh, 37 to 54. And so there's all these fights going on. Here's Jesus. He's the guy who's healing people and reaching out to people. And so the thing we see is that as Christ's ministry increases the opposition increases. And that the, the more success that the gospel is having, the more organized the resistance against the gospel. And these two go together. And what I want us to see is that opposition and resistance are inevitable, inevitable, if we're going to be serious about the gospel of Christ. Not from everyone, but it will come. You know, we're praying for revival. That's one of the things we're asking God to do is, as He's done in centuries past, send a great revival in this area. And wouldn't that be great if revival come? But, you know, are we prepared for the resistance that may come along with revival? Are we prepared for the slander and rejection and opposition? Let's prepare for the whole enchilada, people. It's, it's all of a piece. It's one cloth. Wherever the gospel advances, so 
opposition and rejection is inevitably going to come. <clears throat> and so what we have in chapter 12, verses 4 to 12, is Jesus' instruction to his disciples about what to do in uh, an acrimonious culture and climate. A, a culture that is perhaps hostile or uh, leery of the gospel. What do you do as Christians? Uh, in fact, look back at verse 1. It says, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. So there's all this stuff going on. Jesus is battling with the crowds and the Pharisees. And now it's like he's turning aside to say, look guys, let me tell you how to deal with this. Here's what we need to do in the face of this kind of opposition. So if you look at verses 4 to 12, here's his instruction. He has two points for us. Look at verse 4. I tell you, my friends. Then verse 8, I tell you. So he tells us twice. He's got two things to tell us. Uh, two things that we need to do in the face of opposition. And the first one is in verses 4 to 7. <clears throat> and it's there in the first sentence. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid. That's the first thing. Don't be afraid. In fact, he repeats it at the end. Look at verse 7, last sentence. Don't be afraid. So the first thing Christ commands us to do in a difficult context is to banish fear from our minds. We need to not be afraid. We don't, want to, we don't need to stress out. You know, you're going to this uh, family barbecue and you know that Uncle so-and-so and their cousin's going to be there and they both think that you're joined a cult because you're this Christian person and they, they harass you and you're like, oh no, i got to go to this barbecue. What are they going to say? And you can already feel the knots in your stomach because of all this weird family dynamic that's going to go on because of your faith. And Jesus says, don't stress out about that. Stop obsessing on it. Just go. Don't be afraid. And you know that you know this fall you've got this teacher, a social studies teacher, you're going to college and you'll have this literary professor perhaps or whoever. And for whatever reason, they have it out for Christians. There's always some professor or teacher like that who, you know, they love to mock Christianity and mock religion and those who take it seriously. And, you know, I've had teachers like that. Uh, you know, there was a teacher like that in my high school when I was growing up. You know, what do you do with that? Like, oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? Is it going to hurt my grades? Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. That's his command to us. And, and why shouldn't we be afraid? Well, he's going to give us a couple reasons. That's what verses 4 to 7 are, are two reasons why not to be afraid. Uh, and the first reason is he takes us to the worst case scenario. Look at verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I don't know, when I first read that, that kind of freaked me out a little bit. <laughs> Jesus is like, yeah, you know, don't be afraid of people who can kill you. I'm like, what? <laughs> Did I read that right? I don't know, someone made a death threat on me for my faith, I'd freak out. I don't know about you, I'd, I'd be like, you know, I couldn't sleep that night. I'd be all worried, like someone's going to kill me? What do you mean? That's the worst thing that can happen to you. What do you mean don't be afraid of people who can kill you? Don't be afraid. Don't even worry about people who want to take your life. And that may sound far removed from us, but the reality is that down through the centuries, of course, there are many whom God has called to pay the ultimate sacrifice for their stand for Jesus. Uh, from what we know from church history, it appears that all of the apostles, except for uh, perhaps the Apostle John, if church tradition is correct, all of them suffered a brutal martyr's death. Uh, and down through the centuries, Christians have been burned at the stake and they've been drowned and all kinds of things have been done. Uh, those who research uh, religious persecution tell us that the 20th century saw more Christians uh, martyred for their faith than the previous 19 centuries combined. So it's not like it's declining. In fact, if you like to read about this stuff, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there's a great book you can read, a, a classic book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. That'll tell you about how Christians have given their... It's kind of gruesome, but yet strangely addictive. I can't explain it. I love the book. But, you know, read that. Or if you want to know about modern day persecution, go to a website called opendoors.org. And it's an organization that tracks religious persecution around the world and tries to categorize it and rank, you know, where is it the worst. Apparently, for four years in a row now, the worst place to be a Christian in the world is North Korea, for what I've read. The second is Saudi Arabia, where if you convert from Islam to Christianity, you can face the death penalty. 
Uh, number three is Iran, according to their scale. So it's interesting. You can read about this. You can read stories about people very, today who are uh, being thrown in prison, who are being tortured, who are losing their livelihoods, who are dying for their faith. Uh, these things are still happening. Uh, I got an email this week, another email, from one of our missionaries who's serving in a Muslim country that I'm not going to say the name, but he's over there kind, kind of covertly. But anyway, he's been talking to this student, and this student has just on his own, become very disillusioned with Islam. And he says, I'm, I'm angry. I feel like I'm being told lies. I feel like I'm being manipulated. I just don't believe this. And so he comes to this Christian. He's like, what do you believe? And he says, well, let me tell you. And so they've been having this dialogue and you know, just talking, conversations. And this, this guy is starting to really open up and say, wow, this sounds interesting, this Christianity thing. And, and that's great. But if this guy converts and comes to know Christ not as just a prophet before Muhammad, but as the Son of God, there could be serious consequences for him in today's world. You know, it made me ask myself the question, would I be willing to die for Christ right now? I mean, not when I'm 90 and, you know, I'm almost at the end of my journey one way or another. No offense to those who are 90 here. I mean, I'm sure you have many years left. I'm... But, but I'm just saying, like, you know, right now when I'm in my 30s and I have four kids and I have a mortgage, would I be willing to die for Christ now under those circumstances? It's a question to ask ourselves. And Jesus says, if that should come where you have to stand up for your faith even to the expense of your life, don't be afraid. Oh, don't worry about it. All they can do is kill you. Actually, Jesus says, there's a worse worst case scenario. Death is not the worst case scenario. Look at verse 5. He says, I will show you whom you, you should fear. You want to be afraid of someone? Fear him who, after the killing of the body, has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So apparently death is really not the big thing to fear. It's eternal judgment. It's hell forever. And I know we're starting to talk about hell. Maybe some of you are like, oh, brother, hellfire, damnation. I knew it. Go to church, start hearing about that. Hey, look, if you don't like hellfire, damnation, you're really not going to like Jesus. Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. The reason we know so much about hell from the Scriptures is because Jesus taught on it so much. And I think Jesus did it because he was, you know, he was a no-nonsense guy. He, was, he loved us and he wanted us to hear the truth and he wasn't going to sugarcoat it. So he's like, look, this is how it is. There's an eternal judgment that must be faced. This was Christ's consistent teaching throughout the Gospels. And that's really what we should worry about. Yeah, you're afraid of people, but are you afraid of God in that sense? Yeah, you know, I'm a little worried about being excluded from my neighborhood party, but am I worried about being excluded from eternal life? I'm worried about making some people not like me, but what about God's opinion of me? Am I seeking to please God? And so Jesus, in a sense, just ratchets us way out to the eternal perspective. He takes us out of the immediate crisis. And he says, let's take the long view on this. Really, what is it that matters? Why are you afraid of getting a C in class because of that hostile teacher and not getting an A? Do you think I can't get you into the college that I want you to go to? What are you worried about? Stand up for your faith. Don't be afraid. Because all the world can do to you, at worst, is kill you. And, you know, I don't know if I told you that you're all going to die anyway. I'm going to die anyway. So, what are we worried about, really? So don't be afraid. If you're going to fear someone, fear God. And even God, well, who is He to us as Christians? He's our loving Father. So the one person that I should fear is the person who loved me so much He gave His Son for me as a Christian. So I have nothing to fear. That's the point, I think, of verses 6-7. to seven. He then causes, Jesus causes us to reflect on, Jesus, on the loving nature of God. He says, Are not five sparrows, verse 6, sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You know, sparrows, tiny little worthless bird, just, you know, it's a nothing kind of bird. I mean, in fact, the Greek word for sparrow doesn't necessarily mean a sparrow. It just means some kind of little... All the little birds you see everywhere, you don't even know what they are. It's like, what is that? It's a sparrow? I don't know. We just call them sparrows ourselves. And if you go to the marketplace in those days, and you're hard up and you've got nothing else to buy to eat, you can always buy a couple sparrows. Right? It's the original chicken McNugget. <laughs> how, much, how much food are you going to get from a sparrow? It, it's what poor people ate. You don't, have, you don't have any food, you can't buy a nice, nice piece of goat, 
at the market. So you, you're like, dang, I got a couple of coins. Oh, okay, give me a couple of sparrows. You know, that's what you say. So it's the most insignificant, piddly little meal that a person could buy in the marketplace in those days. And, and Jesus says, but you know what? God knows where every little sparrow is. God somehow keeps track of all those little birds that come to my bird feeder and they fly around and they flock around. God knows every single sparrow. In fact, he says, the very hairs of your head are numbered. I guess for some of us that isn't saying a lot, but I mean, you know, you get the idea. He says, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows where every single one is. He has intimate knowledge. God knows where every cell in your body is. God knows precisely where every cancer cell is. God knows precisely how many days you have to live. He knows everything about you. He has comprehensive knowledge. You know, we talk about God being omniscient. If we sit around and think about what that must contain to be omniscient, it'll blow your mind really fast. To think about all that God knows. If he knows truly everything, if he knows where every molecule is, every atom is, every subatomic particle is, and how it moves, if he knows all that, then what an awesome God. And he knows us. So I think the point of verses 6 and 7 is don't be afraid. If you are being harassed or ridiculed or marginalized because of your faith for Christ, it's not because God has forgotten about you. It's not because God's like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I was busy with this whole thing in the Middle East and you know, you're just one person. I, I, I didn't pay attention. I'm sorry. No, no, no. He knows what's going on. He loves you. There's a plan. There's a purpose. He knows the most intimate details and trials of your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so don't be afraid. And instead of being afraid, we should do something else, which is verses 8 to 12. And here's the second point of Jesus' instruction to us. The first is don't be afraid. And the second is to do the opposite, which is, if I could summarize verses 8 to 12, courageously confess Christ. That's the second point summarize it. Boldly acknowledge what you believe about Christ in the face of opposition. When those moments of opposition come, when there is someone in your face about your morality or your beliefs or whatever, when there is someone teasing you or mocking you, that is a divinely uh, granted moment for you to step up and to speak Christ. That's why it's happened. It's not because God's forgotten about you. No, He's brought you to a defining moment for your faith. This is when God wants you to stand up for Him and in the face of potential personal loss, say, well, actually, you know, I do believe that. Yeah. I, no, yeah, I believe that. You believe that? Well, yeah. You want to hear about it? No. Okay. But that's, what I, that's where I stand. We need to be willing to stand for Christ in those moments. They're divinely... Uh, given moments. That's our moment on the stage when God calls us to speak maybe to a relative, maybe to someone we love, maybe to a stranger, maybe to a boss, whoever, and to answer for our faith and to just endure whatever uh, calumny and and ridicule that we may receive because of that. And so that's what Jesus uh, is telling us. Look at verse 8. He says, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. So again, eternal perspective. We're sucked out of the here and now. And Jesus says, let's look at this in the big picture. If you confess me before men, if in that moment of hostility when you're standing there in front of somebody who's really ticked and exercised and emotional about you and your faith or whatever, and you say, you know what, I'm going to stand for Christ in that moment. God says that is not just an insignificant moment. It has eternal repercussions. There is a shockwave that's sent out. If you stand for Christ, He will stand for you at the judgment day when it really, really is significant. And there's no question. So don't be afraid to stand for Christ. Uh, Don't be afraid to speak up for Him in that moment. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Let me ask you this. We, We asked before, are we afraid to be killed for Christ? Are you afraid to be considered a fool for Christ? Am I afraid of what people are going to think of me? You know, none of us like to be labeled. Am I worried about people labeling me and putting me in a box and saying, oh, you're one of them. Okay, I got you. I don't like that. I don't want to be labeled. I don't want to be ostracized. 
Are, are you worried about your career? Are you worried about the future of you know, your career trajectory? I, I told that story about this guy in our church and I'm going to be praying for him and it sounds like, as, as I heard over a couple of days, they kind of worked through this thing, the two of them, but I mean, who knows? I mean, that's just now. I mean, maybe there can be later effects of that. Who knows where his job is in the long term? Those things happen. So, am I willing to suffer for those things? Am I willing to be considered a fool for Jesus, to stand up and confess Christ no matter what the world thinks of me? And if I do, he says, I'll be acknowledged before the angels of God. But if I disown Christ, then I'll be disowned before the angels of God. And then to kind of drive the point home how important it is to stand for Christ, we get this strange little verse, <clears throat> verse 10, which has befuddled many Christians. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but everyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I'll tell you, that verse freaks Christians out. People are like, what if I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? You know, in fact, I've had pastoral counseling with people who feel that they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, I, I'm totally lost. What am I going to do? What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What is that? The one thing you cannot be forgiven. And my basic answer is, unless you're going to find this very comforting, I really don't know. <laughs> I've read this. I've read the parallel text. I've read the commentators. I'm really not totally sure what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Okay? Um, the early church fathers believed, or some of them believed that it was denying Christ in a moment of persecution, apostatizing in the face of persecution, but, but, you know, then again, there's Peter. And he was put on the spot three times. He denied Christ three times and he was forgiven. Uh, you know, maybe it's this outright rejection of the gospel. But then Paul, I mean, who rejected the gospel more than Paul? He was persecuting the church and yet God rescued and forgave him. So, I don't know. I really don't know what it is. Um, I think I can say this, is that it's not something that happens accidentally. <laughs> whoops, did I say that? Oh, I blaspheme the Spirit. Why did I say that? You know, you can't whoops into this. I, there's some sense in which it's, it's some kind of... You know, from what I can tell, I don't have time to make a whole sermon out of it, but from what I can tell from the parallel text, it's some sort of determined, settled, uh, resolute rejection of Christ and the Gospel, having some kind of really good knowledge of the Holy Spirit's power working and still rejecting it. it. It's some point of no return that God knows. And if we reach that point of... There is a point of no return that God knows and that's His business and I don't know what it is. The point is, don't go that way. <laughs> go the other way. Confess Christ. Stand before people and boldly say, yeah, that's, that's what I believe. Yeah, that's, I, I go to church. Yeah. Or whatever you have to say in that moment. But don't be afraid. Instead, Courageously confess Christ. And then in verses 11 and 12, we have the reason why we, another reason why we should courageously confess Christ. And that is because God will help us in that moment. If you look at verse 11, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. I love this. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Have you ever had that experience of the Holy Spirit just helping you say what you need to say? I have. It's really weird, frankly. You know, someone will talk to you about some of the, the topic of Christianity or faith will come up and you'll start talking. Then all this like will just come out and all these things, verses you didn't think you knew, you'll start paraphrasing the verse and, and this thing from a sermon three years ago will come into your mind and you'll, all these things you know will be woven together and you'll talk, and you'll be like, I had this 20-minute conversation, and the conversation's over. And you're like, what just happened? And I was channeling Rabbi Zacharias. I mean, what, what happened to me? I, it's so weird. I, Billy Graham was speaking through me. It was just strange. It wasn't Billy Graham. It was the Holy Spirit. And he'll, he'll weave things together. And I, I know. I know. This sounds really weird. This sounds like X-Files. But I'm telling you, it happens. The Holy Spirit is real. Do you people believe in the Holy Spirit? You believe that the Holy Spirit is real. That, that it's, you know, we confessed it. Didn't we confess it earlier? I believe in the Holy Spirit, right? So, I, and we say that, but it's like, do we really believe there's a third, not just a force or a power, but a third person of the Trinity who really lives in us and who really empowers us in some way that I can't fully put my finger on, I can't explain it to you, but He helps us to live holy lives, He warns us against sin, and He empowers us to speak. And I think sometimes 
we choke in evangelism. We try to over-rationalize uh, evangelism. We, we try to make evangelism into this, I don't know, shtick or thing that we have to say. And we go take, I've got to take an evangelism training course. So we go to that, and then you're taught, okay, you need to say this, this, and this. And if someone says that, then you answer this. And we turn it into this formula. And those evangelism training courses are great. You should take them because they, what they do is they help you nail down the basic content of the gospel, which you have to have. You have to have the basic content of the gospel. But then I, I think you've got to trust the Holy Spirit so that when you get into those moments to share your faith, let the Spirit take all that knowledge that you have and all the background and just, you know, like go with it, dude. <laughs> let the Spirit... Work and let him activate all those things that you've studied and thought about and verses you've memorized. And, and, and so when you get into evangelism, it's not about saying the right shtick, although there, there may come a point when you need to say, you know, well, let me just tell you the gospel. Boom, boom, boom. You should be ready to do that. But, but to get there, you've got to let the Spirit kind of lead. And it's weird, but you have to go for it. And the Spirit will guide. And you know enough already. You already know enough. I preach the gospel to you every Sunday in about two minutes, I'm about to close this sermon. You'll hear the gospel again. Be prepared. Every Sunday you hear it. You know the gospel. So just trust the Holy Spirit to speak through you in those moments and to bring together, not that your mind is going to go blank and you're going to start talking like things you don't know, but just that he's going to bring everything together and you're going to confidently confess Christ in that moment. And when we do this, when we stop being afraid of people and what people think of us, and our money, and our careers, and our standing, and even our lives. And instead, we say, I'm going to confidently confess Christ in the face of rejection. What happens is, the kingdom of God advances. God's kingdom has always, always made its greatest advances when most persecuted. The church persecuted is the church triumphant. The church harassed is the church gaining ground. And the times when the church most capitulates to the culture is typically when the church just falls apart and becomes yucky. But when the church is under fire, that's when it just seems to grow and grow. And it doesn't make sense, but that's how it works. Uh, Or in other words, for us as Christians, there really is no version of jihad. There's no Christian jihad. We do not advance the gospel through force of arms or political power. And whenever the church has tried to do that in church history, it's been really ugly. <laughs> you know, Inquisitions, the Crusades, even my, my beloved Puritans you know, here in Massachusetts, um, you know, eventually they tried to enforce Christianity through law. And it, it's, it's a failure because it doesn't ultimately happen that way. The kingdom of God advances not by the sword, but under the sword. And so we need to be willing to follow, really, the way of the cross. Because wasn't that how Christ won the victory? He allowed himself to be arrested under trumped-up charges and trundled off to some phony trial in the middle of the night that nobody knew about. And they slapped him. And they tried to frame him. And they brought false charges against him. And he stood there and confidently confessed his faith that he was the Son of God. And so they took him to Pilate, and Pilate did the same thing. You know, they brutalized him, and they whipped him, and they, you know, you've seen the passion. You know, you, know, you know the whole thing. This horrible, grisly torture they put Christ through. But he stood there and endured it and confidently confessed Christ. Jesus said, I could bring down you know, ten legions of angels right now. You want a war? Fine. You know, I could call down the angels, but I'm not going to, because this is not how God's kingdom is going to come. And so he endured that. And finally, they put him on the cross. They crucified him. They mocked him. They stripped him. And he still forgave them. And then he was dead. And they put him in a grave. And, you know, our captain was dead on the battlefield. And the enemy had his body and they're dragging him around. (laughs) Ah, look what we did. And you'd think at that moment, everything is lost. It's hopeless. It's all done. But we know that that was the very moment of the great victory. That at that moment when Christ was dead was when it was all won. Because at that moment our sins were paid for. At that moment, you remember the story, the curtain in the holy temple separating in a sense God from people was ripped in half. And now through the blood of Christ there's a way for us to come into a right relationship with God. Everything was won 
when everything was lost. And so it is that that's how God's kingdom advances in this world. Jesus was raised. He was vindicated. He ascended to the Father's right hand. And someday he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And so in the meantime, he calls us to follow the way of the cross. To see the kingdom of God advanced, not by us flexing our muscles, but by us allowing ourselves to be opposed, but to respond lovingly and clearly with the message of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship You, we praise You, our Savior, for rescuing us from our sins and for doing it in a way that, that subverts the wisdom of this world. You did it through weakness and brokenness and self-sacrifice. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that You would drive out the fear of persecution in us. I pray, God, if there's anyone here facing a particular a hostile opponent or naysayer or anything like that, God, that they would not be afraid, that they would not obsess about it, that they would not waste mental energy worrying about it or replaying the tapes in their mind. They would simply banish fear from their minds and that they would instead courageously and lovingly confess Jesus. Help us, Lord, not to worry about what the world can do to us. Help us to trust the Holy Spirit to speak through us. And so, Jesus, we pray that You would do this work. And now as we come to the communion table, God, we pray that You would remind us of the great triumph of Christ through the cross. Bless us now as we gather around the communion table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we come to the communion table, we come to celebrate the death of Christ for us. Uh, This communion table is open to anybody here who knows Christ as their Savior and Lord. You don't have to be a Baptist. You don't have to be a member of our church. But you do have to be a person who says, I personally know and love and trust Christ as my Savior. Because that's what this table is. It's the table of the Lord. And by eating these elements, what you're symbolizing is, in a sense, you're taking in by faith of Christ. And if you haven't truly taken in Christ by faith, then you know we wouldn't want you to do a symbolic meal that represents that. So if, if that's where you're at and, and you love Christ, then come and, and share in this meal with us. I'd like to ask Drew King to come now. Uh, Drew is one of our elders. He's one of our uh, shepherds in the church. And he is going to uh, lead us in the communion meal today. And uh, Drew lives in Marshfield. Has three kids. Yes. That's right. Three and girls. Should I mention this? You work for the Big Dig? Uh, no, don't. Yeah, that. That. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's grace and mercy here at the table. So... Um, uh, so, and Drew, this is, you know, if you want someone to pray with you, if you want a godly man, Drew is just a godly man. You know, when I hear him pray, I could just sit and listen. Uh, he's, he knows the Lord intimately. He's been a Bible study leader in our church, a discipler of people in our church. Uh, when you, if you listen to the radio show, this is the guy who takes my, you know, 45-minute sermon or whatever and has to reduce it down to 26 minutes to fit the radio format. And he's just handles that so well. I don't have to worry about it. So just a great godly man in our midst. And if you're looking for someone to talk to about spiritual things, uh, a wonderful resource here in Drew. So would you lead us to the Lord's table, brother? Uh, Yes. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit and I uh, pray that he leads me in uh, what to say uh, this morning. So uh, uh, the church has been celebrating communion for over 2,000 years now. And it's uh, it's uh, the the bread and the, and the wine represent uh, what Christ did for us on our behalf to deliver us from the, uh, the power of sin and the consequences of sin. So as we uh, come to this table, we should consider uh, uh, what it means, uh, how much love he uh, uh, gave for us. Uh, he gave up his whole... Uh, his kingdom in heaven to come down here and uh, take on the form of a servant. And he humbled himself. And uh, he humbled himself uh, ultimately um, to death, the death on the cross. And uh, after the death on the cross, he was highly exalted and uh, he has a name above every name that, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, I'd like to read um, uh, the Gospel of John, 
in chapter 6, verse 27, and verses uh, 53 through 55, and Jesus says, uh, and as it relates to uh, uh, the Lord's Supper here, it says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat, meat which endureth unto everlasting life, with the son, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. So, um, if you want to come to that feast today, it's, it's uh, open to all believers. Anyone who puts uh, their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord is welcome at this table. So, uh, let's uh, feast on him today. Um, I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 24. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would the elders please come forth? Jerry, would you please come forward and uh, ask the Lord's thanks for his, his uh, body. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the tremendous sacrifice you made for us, dying on the cross for, uh, for me and for each one here, Lord. I thank you for everyone who has responded to that. I pray for those who have not yet responded, Lord. I just pray that when we think about this, Lord, we will think about the sermon today and the fact that we need to stand up and be counted for you, not to hide, but to stand up and be able to confess you as our Savior. Lord, be with each one of us. Help us to reflect on what you've done for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Invite the uh, congregation to pray while uh, the uh, bread is being passed out. To ask Christ for the forgiveness of your, your sins and to consider all He's done for us.
Christ's body, which was broken for you, uh, take and eat. After the same manner, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Elders come forward. Chung Lee, could you please ask thanks for uh, Christ's shed blood? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And we know that if if we walk in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, your Son, will cleanse, cleanse us all from all our sins. Thank you for lavishing your love on us and calling us dear children and reminding us that we are born of God. Please keep us from uh, anything and anyone who tries to uh, alienate us from you. Take our heart and seal it above for your glory. Amen. When we sing, would you please join with us? Once was
Christ's blood was shed for our forgiveness. Drink up. Would you stand? And after the service, our elders will be here. Uh, I'll be be up front here after the service. If we can pray for you in any way, uh, we'd love to pray for you. If you're sick, we'll pray and just that God would heal you and bless you. But whatever you may need, just come forward and uh, we'd love to chat with you as well. Now, Heavenly Father, I pray, send your people out with hope, joy, courage, fearlessness, and happiness as we uh, try to make our lives happy in Christ. God, we pray that you would send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to a world that needs the gospel, that needs the love of the Savior. Help us to be uh, courageous, loving, living uh, embodiments of the word of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.